Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. What say you, Richard Ellick Murdoch? Are you guilty or not guilty of the felonies wherein you stand and die? Not guilty. How shall you be tried? By God and my country. The exact time when Paul and Maggie Murdoch were murdered. At the end of the investigation, it was obvious. I'm not here to work with them, okay? And the whole point is to have this not fall in the wrong hands. This case is unique, it's unprecedented in South Carolina history. Was she anxious about money issues? Your Honor. I object. There's a matter that needs to be put on the record. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we'll have you go to the jury room. Please not discuss the case. I would move for a mistrial. Um, I would move um, that it's un- not a mistrial because I don't think, even if you give this jury an instruction, you can't unring the bell. Welcome to Unsolved South Carolina, the Murdoch's murder, money, and mystery. We are into the, well, we just finished the third week of the Murdoch double murder trial. I'm here with our exclusive legal analyst, Charlie Condon. Uh, I'm here with our executive producer, Drew Tripp, and manning the controls back there is Max Harrison. And he'll also be fielding some questions. If anybody has any questions for us this evening, we'll certainly try and get to it. But first we have to get to what happened in this courtroom today. We say it every day that there's there's something that twists in a different way and it's always amazing, but uh, this, um, Dick Harputlian standing up and saying, I object and in a really loud voice and then causing talking about a mistrial. Tell me, why would he call for a mistrial, Charlie? Well, let me set the stage a bit, if, if I may, as well, because I was seated maybe 10 feet away from um, Mr. Harputlian, and you could see that, that Assistant Attorney General Metters wanted to get in this testimony that was a new area, really, uh, that the, and it was, wow, what, what, the stage was set, right? I mean, the housekeeper knows everything. So she set the stage of, of she was invited into a room with Maggie Murdoch, and you were all, all thinking, wow, what are they going to talk about? Is it going to be, uh, and then right. so sort of launched into what the subject matter was, which would be basically, and you could, uh, I did sense a little tension at the defense table, like, this is something new now. What's what going are they going to say? Yeah, what's going on here? So then okay. he got that next question in. Uh, did you, something to the effect of, did you talk about money matters or something mm-hmm. like that? Uh, to, and so then there was this, how else to describe it? I've been sitting in that courtroom now, I guess it's 15 days. This by far was the loudest from somewhat quiet to really, really loud in like a nanosecond. And he, uh, Dick just, I, and I'm not going to yell it, but it was a yelling, I object 
sort of angry and popped up. Everyone, of course, you'd react to that sound. I was very near to him, mm -hmm. so the sound caused you to react. And it was one of those moments uh, that um, this is a historic trial, but I think that's going to be a historic moment as well, the, the, the emotion that, that, that just rang through. And then he quickly moved for a mistrial. And you could tell that Prosecutor Metters was regretful, I would say would be a fair statement, that he went to that second question without laying the groundwork with the judge. And so the movement for the mistrial wasn't quite as loud, but it was very forceful. And what was going on in that moment, that's a very important moment from a criminal defense attorney's standpoint. Let me speak to that because he, on behalf of his client, he is asking this judge to stop this trial, throw everything out, and let's start again. And the reason you I would do that, even. the reason you would do that is that you think the information that has been before the jury, you can't unring the bell, is so damaging to his client and that it's not admissible and so prejudicial. And of course, you do think, of course, from a tactical standpoint, that there would be an advantage to let's leave Walterboro for now and come back another day, would be the thinking. And you could tell that Judge Newman. I wouldn't say mad, but was a bit put upon, shall we say, that he was put in this position because that issue could have been addressed without that second question coming out so quickly. So Prosecutor Metters, being the experienced attorney that he is, quickly apologized. But the court then said, well, I'm looking for the issue. I'm not looking for apologies because we've got to deal with this. Yeah, we've got a problem right now. Yes. And so there was a recess. Yeah. And jury sent out, and we had the 10, well, I don't know, what do you think, 10, 15 minutes? It was at least 10 or 15 minutes, long enough that people were starting to get a little right. concerned. Yeah, and you think that you, you, know, you think that maybe this will end. There's right. a possibility. I, I thought he would not do that, but I also thought that he needed to be very careful as to what was said. And I thought he handled it brilliantly when he came back out, is that, that the defense had been telling this jury through different questioning that this was one big happy family. And from an evidentiary standpoint, his, he stated uh, that they, in effect, opened the door on this, that since they brought it up, he's allowed to bring in unhappiness in the family, money troubles with the family. And this was another moment in this trial. Then he said, so uh, I um, overrule, uh, no mistrial, uh, the objection. And another surprise in this case, I heard clapping. That's right. In the public gallery, behind where Charlie was sitting and, and we were both sitting, we hear that it is standing room only, folks, uh, in that courtroom. I don't know if you can see it from the court TV feeds, but it is packed. It is a packed courtroom at this point. There is a line out the front of the courthouse for people to take any seat that comes available. It is absolutely, a, you know, it's, it's something that people have just gotten more and more invested mm -hmm. in. And obviously, they were listening just like we were, and we were busy taking notes, and they started clapping. They did. So, it, it, you know, I thought Newman was going to say something about the clapping. I didn't know that. I've I did never too. heard I actually clapping thought, in a courthouse. I agree, and that was not appropriate. But, but I think at the moment he thought that, well, we have enough going on here. Yeah, let's not add to the For me to try and admonish people and maybe hold them in contempt. Let's just move on. And I think sure. that was an appropriate decision. I have one small anecdote to add to that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> from a perspective of somebody who is not in the courtroom and not able to, and is only able to watch this the way right. that you all, the way that most of you at home are watching it, uh, we're we're a little bit ahead of what you see, uh, just because of the feed. Uh, we're, we're close by. We're getting a, a raw feed. Um, 
But if you've been watching this trial on YouTube or any news station site streaming along court TV, you'll note that sometimes someone will start talking and the first couple of words that they say is muffled. You can't hear what they're saying. Because, and it takes the, the, the crew in the courtroom to switch mics oh, and, and get, that right? get on to who's talking I at see. that particular Because they're moment. cutting off mics because of attorney-client privileges maybe with discussions. And and it ta- I it, see. Yeah. Okay. So it takes all, it's, all, it's always a little brief I wondered about pause that. where you don't hear, hear the first couple of words that some people might say. You didn't need any microphones today to hear what Dick Parpolian said. <laughs> it was loud and clear. You could hear it through the the state's mic up at the uh, up in front of the jury pool right there. It was loud and clear coming through on that video feed. So just a small anecdote well, on how loud it was. And just to just add one more layer on top of that, you know, Charlie and I, I immediately beelined it for from Charlie where he was sitting. I was sitting on the other side of the gallery, and I came over there and I'm looking at him with big eyes going, what's going to happen? What's going to happen when we went into recess? And Dick walks by me and goes, I bet he's going to withdraw that question. (laughs) Isn't that what you said? Actually, it was very clever. I'm, you know, as I said, I think I've stayed the last night friends with Dick. And I thought it was a really funny comment to me. No, he walked by with a big smile on his face saying, I'm going to withdraw the question (laughs) after all this happening. Because he was joking. Right. But it was a good, a good attorney joke in the middle of a, a tense Very moment. serious tense yeah, moment, yeah, yeah. exactly. That well, it, it definitely, it definitely did the did the trick. Now to get back to the testimony of what was going on, um, Blanca. Have you heard much about Blanca before, Drew? Oh, no. she correct. Let me correct one thing. Okay. Withdraw, withdraw. He meant withdraw the uh, the, the, the the whole matter. I shouldn't oh, say the question. The yeah, yeah, yeah. In other yeah, words, yeah, it was sort of a. No, he did he do that at the second back and forth with Johnny Metters? Was that the second one? Oh, maybe no, it was. was. It was. That's that was. what it was. He object- we won't get into that. That's another. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. You're right. You're right. I'm sorry. That's on the other. Forgive that, me. That's right. That was on the other. Because he, no, he was dead serious about the mistrial. That was no, in I think they were hoping right. for Yeah, it was on the second and not to bore everyone with. The, with there was a the big back and forth. Yeah. There was a big back and forth with John Metters and Dick Hart-Putley and on some other evidentiary questions that was, again, heated. Right. Yeah. And the judge then went back in the chambers That's again right. and ruled okay, in favor so of the state. So sorry, but there, but there was so much going on. There was a lot going on. Yeah, I thought uh, <laughs> to, to that one that you're talking about, that, that one too was also inter- interesting where they tried to bring in hearsay. But the, what was going on mm-hmm. when, when we're having this objection, the whole point, the whole idea of the happy family that has right. no, no real strife. Yes. Blanca was more than just a housekeeper. Mm-hmm. And just pausing for just a second, what an incredible story she has mm-hmm. uh, as yes. just a human being. Uh, goes in the military right out of high school. She's, what, what hasn't she done in her life, right? Like she's she's, she's going to the for SCDC. Right. Yeah, Did right. you do that? Yeah. She, yeah. She's worked she's in the prison incredible. system. She's worked as a real estate agent. She's worked. She's been in the military. And then she just got bored one day and went to work at Piggly Wiggly. <laughs> <laughs> or was it Food Lion? To no, go, it was Piggly Wiggly. Uh, yeah, yeah to, of course, to, right? Because the kids yeah. were out of the house and she yeah. was bored, so she, she no, goes stocking shelves. she get out of the house. Yeah. I think that was the intimation. Right. As a as a mom with, with running kids running around all the time, I definitely got the feeling she was ready to get out of the house. Um, but uh, that, that aside, she was... She, what a wonderful story that, uh, as a, from a personal perspective. What a wonderful story. They're asking... Um, they're, they're asking Blanca about her relationship with Maggie and how close they had become over the years. And they were, it was more than just a employee-employer relationship. They were friends. 
Uh, and I think she even noted that right. Maggie had a nickname for her. Was it like Blanky or, or something? Yeah, or and B, and they called her B, and the kids called her Miss B. Mm -hmm. And um, obviously uh, terms of endearment all yes, the way around yes, everybody obviously just adored her mm -hmm. i think at one point they even said that um that paul loved her cooking so much that that he asked to yeah if, that was one of the things make dinner mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. that yeah. was one of the things the night of the murders they asked blanca to cook uh, paul loved her cooking paul was coming home and paul loved her cooking um we keep jumping around but she'd become friends with maggie they were close mm -hmm. maggie calls her into a room one day and expresses some serious concerns just as friends talking that this boat crash lawsuit is going to it's going to end their way of life yeah. uh, like there she says and i i don't i'm not 100 percent sure that i've heard this before but According to Blanca, Maggie told her they were being sued for about $30 million. Right, $31 million, I think. And they, she told, Maggie apparently told Blanca, we don't have that kind of money. But she's at the same time saying, I, I just want this to all go away. Mm -hmm. And I want this to be, you know, I want us to get back to a normal life. And if I could go back and fix this, I would in a heartbeat. And it, it's really obviously weighing on Maggie the impact yes. of this boating yes. crash. And she and, was crying, I think. Blanca mm -hmm. said she was crying. And not only that, she was saying that, that she would she was willing to give them everything that she had. Right. Yes. Maggie was like, I'll give them everything we have in order for to take care of this. For peace. I right. think for mm -hmm. peace, for feeling so guilty mm -hmm. about what had happened to this poor mm -hmm. girl. You know, you really felt that through the way right. Blanca was speaking. And mm -hmm. she said, we'll start over. We'll, we'll start over if we have to. And that is... That uh, that puts a that puts things in a much different perspective if you're if you're interpreting it through the state's lens of Murdoch is accustomed to a lifestyle he is uh, he's very much reliant upon his name and his name family's name value if again it, through the state's lens so it's alluding to more strife there than we've been led to believe that might be that might have that might have actually been the case um it, it's a or might have been led to believe yeah right. and the other thing being um she said that she wasn't sure that alec was being truthful with her about the about the boat crash lawsuit yeah she didn't think that she understood everything that was going on with it um i don't even know well we don't know what that where where that sort of takes it or if the state knows more about what was happening there do we here's the thought i here's a thought just a speculation and thought experiment we're talking about alec being accustomed to a lifestyle and being accustomed to the luxuries that his name value and his reputation and his law firm's power brings him let's think about whose name the properties were in the property's name were in Maggie's names. Moselle was in Maggie's name. The beach house was in Maggie's name. And they're trying to rack up and go through, rack their brains of how can we afford this? Can we sell some stuff? And what if Maggie's like, no, that's my beach house. And, and that doesn't really jibe with what we just heard from mm -hmm. Blanca. she do but, anything to, yeah. Uh, but mm -hmm. maybe there's pressure there from Alec to sell some of that property and she doesn't want to do it. Or maybe it's... Maybe she was willing to sell all that property and Alex wasn't. 
mm -hmm. uh, that it, it, inter it introduces the possibility of some real speculation. Just this one entry into evidence, mm -hmm. this little bit, the snippet of a conversation, it opens a world of possibility. And because you start having those conversations in your head, right, about the conversations you'd have with your own wife and husband if you were in that scenario. And well, and it, when you've been married for 28 years or, you know, going on 30 years or whatever they were that was up there, um, you have those conversations all the time. You have these roller coaster rides. There's no way that they were always just flush and and anyone that's been married for a long time knows that those conversations come up the fact that she needed to close the door while alec was sleeping upstairs to go have this conversation with blanca why did she need that confidence right right, right. then yeah. to me that signals that there was no one else that she could trust to talk mm -hmm. about this mm -hmm. and it and she could be thinking this could affect blanca's life too Sure, because sure. obviously she she sure. gets gains her sure. income sure. through sure. that. So, well, there's a lot there. It, it, uh, there it, was, it. But Blanca had more to say, and I want to play this clip about it. We got a little snippet because it was a short little snippet, but we can expound on this if you don't mind. He turned around and I said, Alec, I said, um, hold on a minute. I said your collar's sticking up. So I I um, he turned around and I fixed his collar. And I fixed his collar. Well, the, okay, so that was a very small snippet. But basically what it was was Blanca was explaining how um, she had seen Alec the day of the murders, which was Monday, June 7th. He's going to work. No one else is in the house. She's at Moselle getting some things sorted out before Maggie arrives um, and helping with a dinner and helping, you know, do all that kind of stuff. And he's walking out the door, and she just immediately sees that his collar's sticking up on the back of his shirt. So she's able to actually fix his collar for him on this uh, seafoam polo shirt that he's wearing. And because she's obviously incredibly uh, paying attention to details, and, and that's the kind of detail that you might remember, too. I think that is also the point. She realizes when they show her later on in this investigation the prosecutors show her this snapchat video where he's wearing a seafoam green shirt again with paul this snapchat video shows a shirt that is not the same as the one that he left the house in right so now we're looking at three sets of clothes not two sets of clothes three sets of clothes so we have not heard and this is an i think incredibly important we have not heard from the defense about these clothes and i do think they are going to have information about why he was in and out of these yeah, clothes that seat in cross-examination thought effectively on on how the clothing could be missing because he didn't go back to moselle after well that's what i was thinking and he took they're arguing they took, he took clothing with them. Now, that clothing, I thought, seemed so distinctive, the seafoam clothing that, that the state was referencing. I would think they'd want to produce that sooner than later if it's still around. It's the kind of clothing or piece of clothing I don't think an outdoorsman would dispose of, even if you lose weight. But anyhow, that's another piece of circumstantial evidence that, 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 that I think the state hopes is going to be there. And, and, of course, how about the business about how he defendant murdoch wanted her to say something about the clothing well, that's what go I was through that say. again that was that, very powerful and that's where things got sticky right because mm -hmm. he a defendant murdoch goes um is shown the snapchat video as well by the by the investigator so he he sees the snapchat video and 
comes to her and says, I need to talk to you about, about my shirt, about what I was wearing. Um, and when he, when he talks to Blanca, he says, uh, I was wearing this shirt. I was wearing this shirt when I left for the office, basically. And she didn't really want to contradict him, I don't think. In her testimony, she said, she just said, well, she knew in her head, well, no, you weren't. Right. Because I touched that shirt. I knew what it felt like. You were wearing one of those Vineyard think, Vines. Vinnie Vines. Right. Um, no, 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 no. Shirt, I think that's not what Columbia. she was. She the was, Columbia shirt was a Snapchat. No, it was that Alex said to her, Blanca, you remember I was wearing a, a Vinnie Vine shirt, right? And it wasn't. It was more of a. It was just a more of a, a regular shirt. polo oh, okay. shirt that he that he was that he had on when he walked that's out right. the door that that he was wearing under his sport coat, um, and she that's recalled right. that it wasn't the that's same right. type and, of shirt. And, and the state wants the seafoam shirt just missing mm-hmm. because it presumably had blood on it, right? It, it, this gets way off the rails, and it's just, it's two that are seafoam right. shirts that are the same color right. that are missing. Yeah. Um, anyway, I it, it's the, what's more important there. The, the big takeaway out of that is now we have two instances mm-hmm. of caregivers working for the Mur- working for the Murdoch family who saw Alec within the time frame of the murders, the day of the murders, and he's gone to them after the fact and, according to them, made suggestions, suggested things, and made offers to them, right. even though they don't seem to be outright uh, outright offers in the sense that you know they're, hey. You say this, and I'll give you some money. It's it's a little more veiled than that. It's a little yeah. more yeah. discreet than that. But he's clearly trying to control the narrative somewhat, yeah, well, according to what they're saying. Yeah, I'd be curious. What is your take on all these wardrobe changes? Because she she paints the picture, gets up late on that Monday, and puts on a certain outfit. She's very descriptive about it with the change in the cow- right, collar. Right, right. Goes to work, I presume, and then we see him with different clothing. That was like at about. What time was that? Was that, that would have been seven? after, yeah, seven. Seven, seven it, was, it was after seven so o'clock. So you think he would go inside Moselle and change and put that other outfit on, right? Mm-hmm. And then that one's basically missing, right? With mm-hmm. the exception, perhaps, there's of some the confusion with khaki pants. Khaki Could pants. be. Yeah. So that seems very suspicious, right? The number of clothing changes that are going on in one day. Yeah. Oh, well, I, I don't, if you're going to go in the, what we've heard is that, Paul is going out or going around the property with his dad, with with Alec, and they're going to, I guess, work or look at some things. They're going to be not doing things that you would want to do in your nice polo and your nice slacks in. Uh, yeah, get, and, that, it, get that first change. He would have been, it was like that means seven, he would have gone it was sh- almost close to eight o'clock at night when he was taking that video, right, with mm-hmm. the tree? Yeah. So that so means he would have gone and, go? That, I don't know. I, that, I feel like. Very strong circumstantial Well, and, and like you said, why isn't the defense um, bringing those clothes into evidence? Maybe they will, right? Maybe that'll be what they say is, oh, is this what you're looking for? Is this right, what you're looking phone, for? Right, the right? Yeah. Um, if they don't, then we do kind of need an answer on where all these right. clothes went. Right, But they did, they did plant, so I thought it was effective. They planted some seeds on how that clothing could be not available at this point in time. So I thought that was good. Well, and also that he had for lost them. an enormous amount of weight, True. Right? right? I mean, he went from a 2XL... Um, and he obviously, you just look at him. I mean, he looks like a completely different person from before these murders right. occurred, uh, from the grief and stress right. and that sort of thing. What do you make about the ring being in her car? Oh, wow. <laughs> I, wow. Another. I ended my story tonight with that. Um, and another cliffhanger, right? Mm-hmm. We find out that and maybe it's not, maybe it was just an interesting thing that they said, but it raised an enormous 
amount of questions. <laughs> why was Maggie's, basically, why was Maggie's wedding band found underneath a driver's sheet in her of Mercedes, her car, her Mercedes. Um, of her Mercedes mm -hmm. when it was in the sheriff's impound lot? Why? Well, why? tell me about the Gucci receipt. Tell me about any number of things that we've heard alluded to today that we don't seem to have a lot of re resolution on and oh. we're anxiously awaiting resolution. And one, uh, uh, if we're ready to yes. mo move ahead, one- Oh wait, oh, sorry, Max. Yeah, we were getting questions, uh, some clarification about the housing situation. Okay. Mm -hmm. So like Edisto property, Moselle property. Oh, let's just kind of lay out what each yeah. one is. So they have, uh, uh, basically we, we heard about how they were on Holly Street, which was their Hampton home for years and years. And when they sold that, uh, the Murdochs moved to Moselle, and Moselle was their primary residence. Moselle is in the Islington community, mm -hmm. um, which is not far from Hampton at all. So you, it's still in the same vicinity, right? And it's in Hampton, um, on that Hampton, Colleton County uh, border, right. 1,700 acres, Moselle property. Um, but they also had a house down at Edisto, and depending on where you're listening to this, that's a barrier island off of the South Carolina coast, one of our absolutely gorgeous beaches. Um, and anyone who lives down here knows that as June approaches, the weather can get very warm very quickly. And I remember it being very warm and we all just crave that offshore breeze that comes sure. in from the barrier island. So I don't think anyone that lives in the low country would ever argue with anyone that had a house on Edisto Beach. Correct. Um, we would just think it was incredibly lucky. So that's where Maggie liked to go in the spring and summer. It's, it's totally logical that she would not want to be down in Moselle where there are a bunch of yellow flies and, you know. And one stuff. more question. Okay. Uh, finding of the ring, would that not say that um, SLED kind of botched this investigation a little bit? That they didn't find that ring underneath yeah. the good point. wow that's a good point no that's hard to that argue against that very cause... perceptive whoever asked that mm -hmm. question so max was saying that why didn't sled find that well we've heard from the defense over and over again and cross-exam already you know why didn't well blanca cleaned the shower and um they brought that up she cleaned the shower picked up the clothes that were laying in the bathroom um, puddle of water, damp towels, all of this hours, still hours after the murders. Um, so absolutely, I think we could all agree that SLED has some questions to answer on this still, right? I would think they themselves They've would been publicly have done things differently. I think. Yeah. Sorry, Charlie. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if I'd go that far. Would you? Publicly embarrassed? I, I, I think there's some missteps, but, you know, it's a lot. By the way, uh, and that's actually, I mean, think about it. You've got how many pieces of property you've got the where was their car that night by the way just at the house right sitting right there yeah and then you towed it mm -hmm. well, that was one of two i can't defend it that should have been a search that should have been found that was two two vehicles that i read were uh, impounded yeah. that night it was right there alex's suv alex suv and maggie's suv or was it yeah, yeah. I think it was an suv well, well, and I wanted to say, too, I'm hearing from folks online right now. They were asking about our streaming um, tonight. We're going to be on our podcast, on our audio podcast, and we'll be bringing back that streaming, uh, that live streaming next week. So if you're at, well, by the time you hear this, right, yeah. you'll know that you're listening to a podcast. But that's what's going on tonight. But, um, yeah, let's get to Nolan or uh, Nathan Tootin. Nathan Sorry, Tootin. Nolan Nathan is the brother. So wow. um, the way I was setting that up, Ann, it was that one of the many things that we've heard and that just have not been resolved in any seeming way, one would be the wedding band. Um, 
just kind of thrown out there and brought into brought into testimony and not followed up on yet. And another one would be today that we heard Paul's lifelong friend, Nathan Tootin, just casually mention that he was cashing a whole bunch of checks for Alec Murdoch <laughs> while working at Murdoch's law firm. Right. Um, he was a, he was a runner. He was, a, he was a courier for the PMPED law, PMPED law firm. Uh, and he would, he was tasked with all sorts of things, delivering documents, right? Running airing, running errands, doing, doing the legal legwork that helps make these offices run. But some of the legwork he was doing for Murdoch was driving over to the bank and cashing checks in Murdoch's name and then bringing him back the cash. And sometimes he would hand Murdoch envelopes full of money with some very peculiar names in the room, Corey Fleming, Chris Wilson, and the chief of police from the town of Yemassee, Greg Alexander. Okay. And so what's, what's the, uh, what do we know about Corey Fleming? Well, we know that he's a co-defendant with Murdoch and dozens of financial fraud crimes and money laundering and, and things like that. We know that Chris Wilson has been closely tied, intimately tied to Murdoch. They were best friends and a, a victim of Murdoch's by all accounts. And, Greg Alexander, we've heard his name a few. You make the rumor sure. mill rounds a few times throughout all this. Right? Mm-hmm. But there was as no- a friend and as a friend as well as someone who knew um, Alec Murdoch right. for sure. The boat um, crash wasn't in Yemassee, was it? The boat crash wasn't in Yemassee within no, the jurisdiction. Wasn't. Okay, no, was it, it near Yemassee or no? Uh, no, it's it's more. To, it's Paris Island, so it's it's farther, way farther down. Um, you want to play the clip? That'd be awesome. We would look through different cases. She would have me get cases from probate court and go through and highlight clear checks. And if I found a discrepancy, bring it to her. Did you understand the scope and, and what you were looking for? Did she kind of involve you in that? Somewhat. Did you figure out kind of shortly thereafter what you were looking for? or what? Okay. So that goes to part two of what you're just talking about. What was Nathan Tootin doing with Jeannie Seconder? Well, according to Nathan, Jeannie was his direct supervisor at the law firm. And after the murders, he was asked to start doing things to help Jeannie with her internal investigation with respect to missing funds and misappropriation of funds. And that involved him running over to the probate court and getting copies of records for clients of the law firm and running through those records looking for clear checks and bringing any bringing back to the law firm for Jeannie to look at these records that she was requesting. And he said within a couple weeks, uh, and knowing what he was looking at and kind of just putting two and two together, he figured out what was going on. He figured out pretty well what he was looking for and why he was looking for those things that he was looking for. Um, and that going back to the testimony about who was in Alex's office when he was cashing those checks, it's a, he was not, uh, he was very much not a witness for, the defense. <laughs> I think we can we can say that. Yeah, and it put that tidbit into perspective, right? We had the the cell phone expert from FBI with that testimony that sort of drug on, wouldn't you say? That oh, went oh on yeah. For, and so I would 
you know, and the courtroom rhythm was such where interest was, shall we say, waning a bit, particularly yeah. after this morning Whenever and after Yeah, you get into, like, deep forensics, it does wane. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think it, his testimony was consistent, as I understand it, with the state's theory of things. But so, but so, end of the day, Friday, and this witness comes up and just calmly at the end drops this, I got cash to check with money and brought it over to the law firm, as I understood it. Mm -hmm. And then there was Corey Fleming. Chris Wilson, and the police chief of Yemisi. And then we just sort of ended for the day. So yeah. here we are in the Murdoch trial with another, what does this mean? Yeah, now we got to worry about this all weekend. What, uh, one thing, two, two, two other notes in there from what he said that missable details, I would call them. He goes, he suddenly stopped, Alex suddenly stopped asking him to go cast those checks a few weeks before the murders. That's, That's right. right, yeah. The other one, and this was a, real strong point for the state. Alec told him on a car trip, he was, he was shuttling Alec to the airport for a vacation in the Florida Keys with Maggie's family after the murders around July 4th. And he told him and Nathan Tootin testified how much Murdoch said he looked forward to putting this boat crash stuff behind him and clearing Paul's name. Mm-hmm. And yes. Yes. I stuck with Nathan. Yeah. Yeah. And I was sure. fascinated by his background too. As he testified, he lifelong friends with Paul lived in the area, right? Mm -hmm. He lived and, with Paul on Moselle. That's right. And then went to University of South Carolina and came back. And I guess while he was in college, he was working at the Murdoch Law Firm. Mm -hmm. And now shows you how what a small world it is. It We're is. sitting here on, on the front porch of the Low Country, Walterboro, South Carolina. And he's a police officer here, correct? Right. Amazing. Yeah, it it's really setting us up for, um, I know prosecution says they want to try and wrap up by the middle of next week. Mm -hmm. Do you think they could be on target for that? Let's hope so. Yeah. I mean, I don't mean that from the standpoint of each day isn't great. But one thing I do think that, I think those jurors are tired. Yeah. Now, just reading body language and you know, sometimes you read too much into that. Maybe they'll be refreshed by next week, but it's a lot, right? It's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a big and, sacrifice and to try and remember everything. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've got six notebooks full. Just today alone, I know that Tara had, had logged 17 pages of notes I believe it. on the testimony. So for the jury to remember everything, those closing arguments are going to be everything. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, we are still waiting for Cousin Eddie to come. Uh, we're expecting it on Monday now. So we will see what happens. To put that into, to put that into perspective a little bit. We know we know pretty reliably what's still what's still to come from the state. They're going to have to have somebody because they've mentioned mm -hmm. now several DNA now uh, DNA swaps taken. That's true. They've ta they've talked about what appeared to be blood on a gun. Right. That Alex had at yeah. the, uh, at his truck. Yeah. There's potential right. blood on a T-shirt. Right. Autopsy. Right. Autopsy. Yeah. That's y'all. Um, Maybe, be, maybe, be glad it's not, that, maybe it's not next week. Yeah. Uh, be glad that, that you won't, and we certainly won't be able to see this from the gallery, but be glad that you won't be able to see that because I'm, I'm think there's a, probably a strong likelihood they're going to show the autopsy photos in the, in the courtroom. But then we also have, we know from, um, mm. we know from, uh, we know from the in-camera hearings last week, we're going to get a sled forensic accountant to talk about where Alex's money was going. And that is going to directly set up 
Eddie Smith, I think, mm-hmm. because that's that's going to be the second time officially Sounds in front of like the jury we've heard right. that name. Right, is when that guy comes, and we know right. he's coming. And his lawyer was in the courtroom today, right? Okay. Well, so much to to look forward to for next week as we wrap up the third week of the Murdoch double murder trial. Uh, we will uh, hopefully you'll have an opportunity to catch up on all of the news this weekend that was, and we will be back with you on Monday. We do want to tell you that um, if you've enjoyed Unsolved South Carolina, the Murdoch's Murder, Money, and Mystery, we're going to keep rolling through this trial. But you have another series that to listen to and we'd love to to have you do that it's called unsolved south carolina finding britney drexel and this is a project that we started um in may and are now just uh rolling out new episodes Uh, and it is a fascinating case it's a young girl who went missing um and myrtle beach Mm. left and went down to myrtle beach for spring break with her um friends and vanished on the streets and for 13 years we looked for her killer and it is an unbelievable story and we hope that that you can look for the newest episode on that yeah look on the for the latest episode on that tomorrow and uh, we'll see you here on monday thanks so much